0: Supper and to gather and, uh, as as Wendy so well described, to to remember something. It's always a challenge for me in preparing because it's so serious on on one side and so uh, celebratory uh, on the other side that Merging those two is is kind of a challenge for me, and I think that there's there's several reasons for that one is my my own ineptness that I struggle with in understanding the profoundness of the gospel uh, I think another is is I think that the the modern church is bored with the gospel uh, i'm I'm really scared about that um, I was pondering some songs as As we were uh, singing and and I was thinking about this song. Who can cheer the heart like Jesus by his presence all divine, true and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed to call him mine. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. Can, can, can Can we say that with honesty today? I mean, we get pretty thrilled about a lot of stuff, but I, I don't see, I don't sense at the level maybe that we should that we're really thrilled with Jesus and this beautiful gospel that we're about to kind of lay out and think through. And so part of my challenge is the, the preacher has this job and it is, hey, Bart, make the gospel interesting to us today as we pass our time. If I got up here and did nothing but read the story of the crucifixion, we should get up on our pews and yell at the top of our lungs that we're delivered. We need it to, to, to think that through when we come to worship. There's a lot of pressure that's put on staff members and music people and singers and preachers and, and musicians like, can y'all, can y'all make this thing interesting for us? If we just really did a terrible job today, the gospel should make us all cheer. Now, I don't think we should ever do a terrible job. I think Jesus is worthy of our best. But I also think that that pressure kind of makes churches very manipulative. And there's one thing I don't want to be is manipulative. I, I don't want to try to create something in you that God has not by his spirit born of his work. Because if I created something in you that God is not born of his spirit through his work, it's fake. And I don't want us to ever be that. So coming into the Lord's Supper, I think the best way that I can set it up today is looking back at a lesson from Sunday school a few weeks ago. At the end of Joshua, Joshua was having this talk. And this talk was a talk with the, the the Israelites before he knew he was leaving. And I described on our Wednesday night class and to our Sunday school class that it was kind of like this talk. It was as if it was as if you had kind of raised your child here in Pineville, and you chose Pineville because it's kind of protected from a lot of the stuff of the world. Pineville schools, Tioga schools, Grand Schools, kind of protected from the the, the the roughness of the world. Not to say the world's not there, but in some home school, and some private school, and, and we kind of think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm rearing my child in a pretty safe environment, and, I, and I've done that, I've chosen that for particular reasons, and, and then they graduate high school, and they get this uh, scholarship to LSU, and you drive down to Baton Rouge, and you and you're driving to Baton Rouge and you know you're going to drop your teenager off uh, at the campus of LSU. And so you're thinking, what do I tell them? I mean, they're about to walk into all kinds of cultural things they've probably never experienced. They're about to walk in and hear professors say some things they've probably never encountered. They're going to have some friends that believe some things that they probably not have friends believe, at least in the mass of what you get on a college campus today. So you're driving there and you're thinking, what kind of talk do I need to have? And so Joshua's having that talk. He's having the talk. He's dropping Israel off in the promised land and he's about to get in the car and leave them. And so he's having that talk, and, he, and his talk in his talking the end of Joshua says this, it says, fear the Lord and serve Him. That's what he says. Because he knows that nothing else is going to drive right behavior properly, except the true fear of the Lord and the true desire to serve Him. And so he says that to the people of Israel, just like we might say it, we're driving down there and we got our child in the car and we're trying to say, I, I need to help them... Finish getting ready for what they're going to be exposed to. So we're saying, you know, when you get there, the main thing that you got to do, you got to fear the Lord, trust Him, and serve Him. And your and your teenagers sitting there, and they're just nodding their head. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm on. I, yeah, I'll do it. And they really don't fully know what they're going to encounter and the kind of pressure that they're going to be under, the kind of temptations they're going to be exposed to because they're going to move up a level on a college campus from all the other campuses they've had before. This is going to be a little different. And they're just nodding their head. And Joshua turns and he looks at him and he says this, and and, and we need to have this conversation with our kids as they grow up. He looks at him and he says, you can't do this. Now, that did not sound very encouraging in Joshua. You got right there, fear the Lord, serve him alone, ask for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then uh, then they said, oh yes, we'll do it. And Joshua turns to him and says, you can't do it. For the Lord your God, he is a holy God. And he is a jealous God. And the Israelites, rather than listen to the words of Joshua, who was wise and God was speaking through him, said, oh no, sure we can. Yes, we can do it. And you see through... The stories we're reading now in the books of the, judge, the book of the judges, they really couldn't do it. What was Joshua doing there? He was pressing them from human performance into a faith relationship. That's what he was setting up. You see, the Old Testament is setting up, it is teaching, it is laying the groundwork, and it is exposing the Israelites to this truth. that the relationship with God is not based on our abilities. It's based on a supernatural, divine intervention, an ability given to us by the work of his Holy Spirit. And it is a work that comes through faith and is done in faith and by faith. And so what we've got to do today is we've got to think through how do we address the Lord's Supper? How do we look at it? And so here's the one question. So let's get down to the bottom of it. And I am want to ask you this question. How do you deal with sin? So let's make it really personal. How do you deal with sin? So let's rephrase it to ourselves. How do I deal with sin? So let's ask ourselves that. So go in that little inside compartment in there where you live. You know what I'm talking about. And say, ask yourself, how do I deal with sin? And then start thinking back over time about how you've dealt with sin. Now, the Lord's Supper is about that question. Because the Lord's Supper is given in a context of self-examination. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 11, he says, if you're going to take the Lord's Supper, you better do so by examining yourself. So you kind of have to pull back and you have to forget about all this is going on around the outside. And you have to pull in and say, how do I deal with sin? What do I do in response to personal sin in my life? Now I'm going to tell you what we normally do and why the Lord's Supper is so important for us. Here's what we normally do with sin. Now, before that, I want to precede it with a statement. Satan wants human beings to gain a sense of relief of guilt through any avenue other than the cross. Now, follow that all the way to the end. Satan wants human beings to gain a sense of relief of guilt through any avenue other than the cross. So here's how we normally deal with sin. We normally sin. Do y'all sin? Is it okay to say we normally sin? Because we normally do. Okay. All right. We normally sin. And here's how we normally or typically deal with it we sin, and something raises guilt in us. Don't know what it is. Sometimes it's somebody around us that says, You're an idiot. And you say, I am. And you know, you're wrong. Sometimes it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's a sermon, a Bible study, Sunday school lesson. Or you get busted. And somebody points your sin out. And so sin happens in our lives. And then we respond to it. And here's what we normally do. We normally say, I'll do better. That's what we normally do. We normally say, I don't want to do that anymore. I'll do better. And then we lay out a plan for doing better. All kinds of plans. I'll do better. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm I'm going to do better. And so what we do is we go from guilt to doing something to relieve the guilt. Something like doing better. I won't do that anymore. I'll stop that. I'll fix that. I'll change that. And then... We sometimes do better and we take pride in it and we start to look around at other people who aren't doing better and we start thinking, I wonder why they're not doing better. I'm doing better. I have improved my behavior. I have improved myself through trying harder. Do you know what that is? That's called the birth of a Pharisee. That's how Pharisees are born. They're born through human performance. And believing that doing better is the right way to deal with sin. And it creates judgmental people. Because we take pride in doing better. We fail. We say, I'm going to fix that. This is why thin people who have gotten thin over a lot of discipline look back on people who aren't as thin and start judging them. And body shaming. Because there's a new kind of self-righteousness. I can discipline myself. Why can't you discipline yours? Smokers do it to... uh, Non-smokers now do it to people who smoke, the ones who break the habit. We go through all the different kinds of things that you might be struggling with and get out of and into. And it develops a kind of pride. Pride. And so what happens then is we take pride in the doing better and our self-reliance increases, setting us up for certain failure and criticism of those who don't appear as strong as we are. And then it creates the tendency in pride to hide when we do fail and to begin covering our sin by self-righteousness. Now think this through with me, because this is the normal operating procedure for humanity. Satan wants you to do anything but go to the cross to relieve your guilt. Your flesh wants to do anything but go to the cross for your guilt. The world wants you to do anything but proclaim the cross as the relief of your guilt. And so in our nature is designed, because of our sinfulness, a tendency to encounter failure and promise to do better. Now what I want to tell you that I've described is called the anti-gospel. I've just described to you almost every world religion except Christianity where the church engages herself in behavior modification through peer pressure or behavior modification through pride rather than gospel proclamation. And so what this does is it builds a laboratory, it builds a breeding ground, it builds an incubator for Phariseeism. Because what we begin propagating among us is self-improvement and self-help, which is the leading kind of book that people buy. In fact, the self-help section in Christian bookstores is often bigger than the theology section because those books sell so well. And so what happens is we begin to become proclaimers of anti-gospel rather than of gospel. And we're afraid to look at each other like Joshua looked at the people and say, do you realize you can't do this? We're afraid to sit with our teenager who's getting out of the car to check in at LSU or wherever else it's going to be and look at them and say, do you realize you can't do this? It is not within your own capacity to carry this out. This is not something you can do. And so the the Lord's Supper basically says this. This is not something you can do. This being right with God. This getting right with God. This staying right with God. It is not something you can do. And so here's what's happening. The Preaching through the Lord's Supper is a lesson that says with God there is no plan of self-help. There is no plan of self-improvement. There is no plan of human performance. With God there is something that God alone can do and you have no capacity in you to carry it out. And so that's why when we come to the Lord's Supper, we have to think through, how am I dealing with my sin? What am I really doing with my sin? Am I, am I whitewashing it and saying it's not as bad as the next guy? Well, comparative philosophy of life. Am I hiding it thinking oh, they're just, they're not going to find out? A- am I rationalize it saying, you know, everybody does this. Everybody struggles with this. Am I covering it by going to church today? We kind of do this thing where we sin and we say, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I'll go to church like nine times in a row. Then we end up like visiting on a Wednesday night even. And so there's this process that's woven into the nature of humanity that says when I sin, I am going to deal with it. And here's how. So, so the question I want to ask you, and I want you to be honest, as if you were standing in the presence of God, I want to ask you, how do you deal with your sin? What are you doing with your sin? If God really is keeping a record of all sins, the Bible says that He is. If God really does have books that will be opened on that day, If God really is in possession of all knowledge of every motive, every thought, every intent, every deed I've ever done, if He actually possesses that and I actually have to stand and give an account for it, how am I dealing with it? What am I doing with my sin? The Lord's Supper really doesn't make sense apart from that. It's not a religious ritual. Jesus didn't say, do this in order to carry out the religion I've passed on you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So it's going back to him. And so you and I have to ask this question today, and we need to leave here with the right answer. My goal today, my hope today, is for you and I to walk out these doors today with a renewed confidence in the truth of the gospel. So that what we go out today is not how great this was or that was, but we actually go out and sing, how great is our God. How great is our King. How great is our Savior. So that's what I've been setting up. So join me now in two particular things um, I want to take you to. So let's park for a minute in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think that would be the best thing to do at this point. And and deacons, I'm going to call you all forward in just a second. So I've set you up to answer one question. How are you dealing with your sin? So the first thing that we have to do in dealing with the Lord's Supper is break it into its components and think through its components. There's two components. There's there's a bread and, and there's a cup. And each of them have a representative value, a representative understanding inside each element that are very important to understanding Christ's work for us. So if we're going to come to the Lord's Supper, we're going to examine ourselves, we're going to say, okay, God, what am I doing with my sin? Alright. Well, in order for me to understand that, I need to understand who Jesus is. When 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin. Well, we just read the verses about the relationship of those two. Who is Jesus? Well, the Bible says He's the second person of the Trinity as the co-creator, the agent of creation. God calls Him Son, and through Jesus, God creates everything that exists. All matter, all space, all time, all things that are not a part of the Godhead itself came into being through Christ Himself. He is the fullness of Godhead in bodily form. Christ is God in the flesh. He is the one through whom The world was created, and for whom the world was created, all things are summed up in Christ. So, when we come to the table to discuss these two elements, we have to discuss them in the context of who is He? He's not some angel, He's not some human. He is God clothed in human skin, God incarnate. God among us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him. And apart from Him, nothing has been created that has come into being. And the Word was made flesh And dwelt among us. Jesus of whom we speak today. Of his body and his blood. Jesus is God. In human skin. And so when we say he who knew no sin. He is the sinless son of God. And so when we take the bread today. And when we take the cup today. These two pieces are. Relative to things about who he is. So let's go to who he is again. He is God incarnate. When we take the body, we are taking a representation of his active obedience. What does that mean? It means that from conception to death, Jesus Christ never broke the will his dad, ever. When he was tempted, when he was tested, when he was tried, when he was tortured, when he was killed, nothing along that path ever violated the father's good law and the father's good will. So that when you are holding the bread in your hand, you're holding a representation of Jesus' performance. Now, how does that relate to you? Here's how. The reason your desire for self-improvement is anti-gospel is that you can never be improved to the point where God will accept you. Ever. There is nothing in your performance that can ever gain you standing. That's why Jesus' active obedience, His performance, is so important to your relief. When you fail, it is because you failed to perform to God's standard. When you sin, it is because you failed to perform the righteousness, either in intent or action, That God requires of you. Your performance can never relieve your sin. It may give you a temporary feeling of betterment. But it does nothing between you and God. Except alienate you. Because Jesus' performance, when you hold the bread in your hand, Jesus' performance is the issue there. He in His body, that's why, go go to Hebrews real quick. And look with me at this wonderful statement that he says in chapter 10. And Steve read this, and it's just laid out so clearly. It says in verse 5, When he comes into the world, that is Jesus, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired. Okay, Things of human performance under the law is not what God is asking for. We've already violated that. It's already done. It's over. We've already sinned. Then he says, but a body thou hast prepared for me. As David proclaimed the nature of salvation that was coming and the work of Christ, he summed it up in a body. He said it's not about sacrifices and about offerings. It's about a body. Here is the glory of the Gospel. You have failed to perform what is necessary for God to ever accept you. That's done. But as your substitute, Jesus has performed what was necessary for God to accept you. So when you're holding that in your hand, your praise, your thanksgiving, your glory given to God is to hold that and to say this, I have failed! But, oh, Jesus, You have not. That's why the Bible says, He who knew no sin... That's why it says He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's why 1 John says that He did what He did without ever sinning. Over and over again, Jesus is the one performing where you failed. And so your hope today is not in religious, moral, self-improvement. Your hope is to hold in your hand something that relates you back to Jesus in your memory, to say, Lord, I remember that this body lived perfectly. That this body performed righteously. That this body attained all perfection of holiness and obedience and righteousness to God the Father. I hold in my hand a representation that says, Bart Walker, you do not have to live up to a standard for God to accept you. Jesus already met the standard. That should thrill our soul. That should thrill our hearts today. But wait, when you move to the second element, we have what's called Jesus' passive obedience. Obedience. His active obedience is that which He performed in absolute righteousness, doing everything you should, I should, we should have ever done in relating to God the Father. But now the passive obedience is we didn't. And it's not just sufficient for there to have been somebody to live in our place. Because we've already failed. And the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. And so now there's not just his active obedience in doing all that we failed to do. There is his passive obedience in which the Bible says he received in his body the due penalty for our sin. So when you're holding the cup, you're changing gears. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. As He was carrying out what would qualify Him to die for you. He came to that place where then the passive obedience is Jesus being penalized, being punished, being killed, receiving the wrath of God in Himself on your behalf. So that you don't have to fear death, you don't have to fear judgment, you don't have to fear punishment, you don't have to fear any of those things, because Jesus is taking those things into himself. So what is this good gospel? It is that God in flesh, Jesus Christ, lived absolutely in perfection, performing all that you and I and we should have ever done, in obedience to the will and word of God the Father. And then, in the qualification of His perfection and His righteousness, that body that performed perfectly died sacrificially. So that when you hold the cup, you're holding the cup of the resolution. And the cup of the resolution is my sin issue is resolved, not by self-improvement, but by Jesus. He lived for me. He died for me. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, this is the lesson we're coming to. How do I deal with my sin? How do I rightly deal? Well, when you and I sin, there is only one place to go. The cross. Anything else is anti-gospel. Take your sin to the cross, whatever it is, and stand there and behold two things colliding. Tim Keller writes it this way, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You see, here's what's happening. At the cross is the collision of two things in the nature of God that have to be resolved. His wrath for sinners and His love for sinners meet at the cross. His love for sinners and wanting to redeem and forgive and save and give life and relationship and eternity and blessing and hope and His wrath that says He must justly punish all sins and all sinners. And those two things are coming at unbelievably large proportions and bam, they meet on the cross. Where Jesus' performance made him an eligible and the only eligible contestant for forgiveness of sins. And where the wrath then is poured out upon him and his blood is shed, removing our sins. So that in life, he performed where you have failed. And in death, he paid where you cannot. Expressing an infinite love for you. And so as the deacons come forward now, I want to do two things to help us close kind of quietly and thoughtfully. I want first, as they're coming forward, for you to bow with me. Kind of cut off all the things around you for a moment. And I want to ask you to ask the first question again. I want you to go back to that question. So everybody bow, bow heads. Just kind of not looking around. I just want to ask you this question. Ask yourself, how am I dealing with my sin? What have I been doing with my sin? Have I been in the process of self improvement, living an anti gospel by trying to do better? Or have I been taking my sin directly to the cross? And there and in that place, seeing and knowing and understanding that Jesus performed where I have not and He received the wrath where I could not and that all of it is resolved in the love of God meeting the wrath of God in the cross. That's what we need to do to close today. We need to see who performed for us and who was punished for us. And we need to rejoice. And so as we pass out the elements this morning, they're kind of together in two cups. The bottom cup has the bread in it. The top cup has the juice in it. And as they're passed out today, I want you to just take a moment and contemplate with me once you've received them. And kind of walk through the gospel to yourself. Now, one question in your mind today What am I doing with my sin? How am I dealing with my sin? Would you pray with me? Father, we're passing out the representative pictures, elements of the gospel. We take it into our hands today with thanksgiving, knowing that it is a picture and a memory of Jesus our King. And so we want to do it worshipfully. So, Father, as we receive them, I pray you would prick our consciences today about our sin. That you would make us very well aware of our sin. And that you would drive us toward the repentance of coming to the cross. And as we receive these, that the grace of understanding would just fill our hearts. And we would be thrilled with Jesus today. Thrilled with who he is. What he did actively to live out how we failed. And what he did passively to receive in his body the penalty for our failure. And so, Father, now, by the grace of Jesus, speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. elements are being passed out. I'm just going to read some scripture to you to encourage you. Hebrews 10.8 says, In saying above, sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he said, Behold, I've come to do thy will.'" He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, days," says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart. And upon their mind, I will write them. And then he says, And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What a glorious truth that God desires to forgive our sins. And to remember them, to recall them no more. This is a glorious, sweet truth of the gospel. Father, we are challenged today to understand your love that is infinite, your grace that is sufficient, your power that is omnipotent, and how you in Christ stooped, condescended to us. Come down to bear human skin and to live out a life under the law with perfection. And so, by your grace today, we rejoice in the performance of Jesus on our behalf. And we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll separate. Your two cups at this time. Maybe drop the bread into your hand for a moment. And then take a moment and ponder all that Jesus has done on your behalf. Every time He was tempted, He trusted His Father. Every time He was tested, He remained faithful. Every time he was mistreated, he kept offering himself up as a sacrifice. In all things, Jesus performed perfectly on your behalf. Bow now and thank him. Father, we want to give praise. We want to give thanks for Jesus. You've been so good to us. Jesus, we want to praise you for offering yourself. Living perfectly, righteously, sinlessly, flawlessly. And doing that for us. So that we do not have to rely on our ability, which we have not. We can rely on your ability because you have. We love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. When Jesus was speaking in John 6, he says, if you, have, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. The disciples got really confused about that. Early historians thought that Christians were carnivores, they were eating somebody's flesh. Jesus was not talking about internalizing his physical body or swallowing bread. He was talking about internalizing truth. That in the gospel, the observance of the Lord's Supper, that the eating of the bread, the taking of His flesh, would be that you are acknowledging and accepting that He did this for you. His performance in your place to relieve you of your failure. But then He went on And said, drink my blood. It was another kind of performance. It was the one where it wasn't about what he had done, but what you had done. See, the penalty was death. And so Jesus, in his love for you, not only performed in the active obedience of doing everything right, He took the passive obedience as if He had done everything wrong. So in that moment on the cross, He was you. You. You put your name tag on Him while He's up there. And everything you ever deserved for everything you ever did was being laid on Him in that moment. So that through his death you would receive not just the forgiveness but the last part of the promise of 2 Corinthians 5:21 he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of god in him and so as we drink this sweet cup of his blood representing what He did for us in His death, we are also acknowledging this one precious gift. By our faith in Him, He has communicated and given to you 100% of His righteousness so that when God looks at you through faith in Christ, He sees not what you have done, but what Jesus has done. And not what you deserve, what Jesus has paid. So now he looks at you in the way. He looks at Jesus and he calls you sons and daughters of the living God. That is a sweet gift. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the cup representing the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins and the glory of His offer that any who come to Him would be washed clean. And so we rejoice that You accepted us. And we drink knowing that through faith in Christ, we are the sons and daughters of the living God. And we give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. I want you to leave with relief. Some of you need to gain that relief for the first time in your life. It's very possible that you're here today and your whole reason for being in church was revealed when I talked about Trying to make up for past things by doing better. And that you may be here today because that's what you're trying to do, you're trying to do better. Go to church, read your Bible, pray. But those things cannot relieve your sin. Jesus does. And so I want to invite you to Jesus. I want to invite you to literally leave whatever it is you've been trusting in. And I want you to run right to Jesus and know that He did what you couldn't do and He received what you couldn't bear. And He was raised from the dead at the end of that to confirm that what He had done was sufficient and that He received sinners. And I want to invite you to Jesus. And I want to invite you, if you're a Christian today, and you've been walking back into that darkness of trying to do better, I want you to come back and refresh your walk with Jesus. And I want you to leave here today relieved by the Gospel. And I want you to be able to go out the doors today singing, All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. Would you come as God?